podcast of the Leeds Centre for Dante Studies. Welcome to the 11th of our conversations on Dante, a series where we're sitting down with experts in a range of disciplines. We're talking about how their work can help us understand Dante, his context, his works and his place in the cultures of the world. I'm Matthew Trahern, and in this episode I'm joined by Jason Alain Pizon to talk about Caribbean poetry. And in particular, we're talking about the ways in which Dante helped inform the work and thought of three poets. Aimé Césaire, one of the key figures in 20th century Francophone literature and in the Negritude movement. Kamar Brathwaite, the Barbadian poet, who was born in 1930 and died earlier this year, 2020. And the Jamaican poet Lorna Goodison, born in 1947. Now, Jason Alan Pizon is lecturer in Caribbean poetry and decolonial thought at the University of Leeds. As well as writing on Caribbean literature, Jason is himself a wonderful poet. His first collection, Thinking with Trees, is published in 2021 by Carcarnet Press. And in our conversation, Jason discusses how Césaire, Brathwaite and Goodison engage with Dante's interest in the vernacular, in questions of justice and redemption in notions of locality. Dante becomes a sort of template for these authors. Jason touches on questions of language, colonial violence, the ongoing violence of financial capitalism. He also shares some of his own poetry, reflecting on the presence of Dante in his own work. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Jason, it's really good to see you today. Likewise, Matthew. Thanks so much for having this conversation. You came to Dante, first of all, through thinking about Aimé Césaire as a reader of Dante and thinking about the way in which Césaire responded to Dante. Could you tell us about that? Yes. When I started working on the first theatrical work that Césaire ever published, which is called Et les chiens se taisaient, and the dogs were silent, it was never brought to the stage but according to Césaire, it provided the germ out of which all his subsequent works for the theatre emerged. And at the start of that work, we find ourselves in a dungeon. It's called a barathrum. That's the term that Césaire uses, in which we find many souls. They're being tortured and they're awaiting death. And that imagery evoked Dante to me immediately. I didn't know Dante very much, but I knew enough for that to click and to hear that resonance. It emerged as I discovered that Césaire was an avid reader of Dante when he was at the École Normale in Paris in the early 1930s. The testimonial comes from Léopold Cédar Sancor, who was his classmate at the École Normale, that he would read Dante in the original and quite keenly. That got me thinking, how much did the comedy influence this particular mythical and an epic text, uh, which he began about the Haitian Revolution and Toussaint Louverture, and eventually transformed into a, a more general, evocative drama about slavery and liberation. And it involves a murder at the hands of an enslaved man who murders his master and wrests his his freedom back from the people who keep him captive and he must undergo punishment for this. 
it's quite a surrealist text written in the surrealist mode, densely poetical, very evocative. I wanted to see how the symbols, the imagery, the language possibly of the Divine Comedy, and particularly the Inferno, provided a template to Césaire for his drama that examines a rather teleological, if you will, evolution from subjugation to awareness to a decision to take back one's liberty. And that, I thought, the comedy going through Inferno, Purgatorio, and then ultimately to Paradiso as a kind of gradual movement of consciousness that takes one to the ultimate awakening would provide a way of reading this play by Césaire. I hope that the reading that I did was credible or persuasive, but at the very least, that initial interest took me deeper into Dante's comedy and particularly to think about how the inferno as a space and the journey of the pilgrim from a sort of lesser awareness of self to a greater awareness of self and to, shall we say, to the light, to truth, offers a mirror of the African diaspora experience, which, as you know, starts out with the harrowing experience of slavery. Dennis Looney, the American scholar, has a book that talks about how African diaspora creatives have used Dante's Divine Comedy as a metaphor for the African diaspora experience. And it seemed to me that nothing had been written, as far as I'm aware, on the Caribbean context and other African diaspora contexts outside of the United States, despite the fact that that it, it seemed clear that the potential that did exist. So my work took off in that direction and I eventually became interested in looking at Kamar Brathwaite, the foremost Caribbean poet from Barbados who develops a theory of nation language and who alludes to Dante in his seminal text called History of the Voice. And I wanted to look deeply, more deeply into that. And then Lorna Goodison came to my attention when I ordered her collected poems published by Carcanet Press and realized that she had done some rewritings of a couple of cantos from the Inferno. And so I thought there was something interesting here. So these poets, Brathwaite and Goodison, could you tell us a bit about when they're writing, where they're writing? Of course. So Kamal Brathwaite starts writing, if my memory serves me right, in the 1960s and the the text that perhaps people will remember most from Kamau is his trilogy called The Arrivals, a New World Trilogy, which was published by Oxford University Press in 1967. And it's an epic work about the Caribbean experience. And when I say the Caribbean experience, I mean the formation culturally and historically of what we know as the Caribbean today, which begins with the indigenous people who were there when Columbus arrived and who were then 
many of them were exterminated by genocide and overwork under the Spaniards, after which you've got the English and other European colonists coming in with trade in Africans and slavery and that sort of thing. So the epic is based on that arc of history. And the text that I referred to called History of the Voice was written in the 1980s. But Brathwaite has been writing from that period. And the important point to take away is that this period was in the aftermath of the independence era of most of the Caribbean countries. And Brathwaite's preoccupation was with articulating a poetics and a kind of literature, a way of writing that was distinctively Caribbean rather than imitations of Western European styles and genres. And that accompanied him through his literary journey, which ended only early this year when he died. So that's Kamar Brathwaite. You've got Lorna Goodison who belongs to that generation of post-independence writers but she comes in a bit later. She is a prolific poet, numerous collections of uh, of poetry published and uh, as I've said her collected poems are with Karkinet. Lorna Goodison has translations of two cantos out, but I've been informed by her that there is a number of others in the works that should be published soon, but I can't say what her particular plans for, for those are. So I suppose one of the themes that is coming out is the idea of a vernacular language for poetry and the way in which an engagement with Dante and Dante's interest in the vernacular might provide a sort of spark for these authors as well. Would you be able to say a bit about why Dante's interest in vernacularity is helping to shape the work of these poets? Of course. Let me say one thing first. The way I see it is that you've got a set of poets who are already trying to shape their theory and their understanding of language in the colonial context. They're already doing that. But in the case of Brathwaite, he's writing a treatise and he can say, hey, I've got an example of a well-known guy who did this 700 years ago. And he is one of the luminaries, the monuments of Western literature. And hey, what we're trying to do over here is something that's not different, really. Dante in the Vulgare Eloquenza talks about an illustrious cardinal, courtly and curial. His defense of Italian, a vernacular language, was based on saying that it had earned its stripes and it was the language of the people. It was the vulgar tongue. And it provided a means of gathering, of coming together around a shared identity. And that is the idea that appeals to Brathwaite. The the idea, namely, that the vernacular can be the language of rhetoric, can be the language of poetry, can be the authentic language of culture, the authentic language of cultural expression. And so... Brathwaite will take up Dante's idea of the vernacular as an illustrious language. And that is precisely what he does in that famous treatise, History of the Voice. That is where the the idea of nation language is, is pegged. 
to that kind of gesture, which is considered an emancipatory gesture. Language, as Brathwaite articulates in various places, is, is epistemic. It's not just a superficial appendage to how we move and live in the world. It, it is our vehicle of moving through the world. It's part and part, parcel of how we articulate our world or worlds. And that has to do, of course, with our philosophies and our worldviews. And language carries all of those and implies all of those. And if one is forced or one is made to believe that one has to use a language that is not one's own, or that the European language, in the case of the Caribbean, is superior to the Caribbean language, then that cuts one off from one's traditions, one's roots, and one's ancestry. And that is a point that Brathwaite will emphasise and continually emphasised that language offers a way of connecting with tradition and ancestry. Language was necessarily tied to a people's cultural worldview, including their spirituality and this sort of thing. And he says, with regard to English and nation language, he talks about how the rhythms, sounds and speech patterns of Caribbean Caribbean language, which of course it is necessarily English, but it carries so many other influences from various places, in, in foremost among them Africa, of course, that those rhythms have to be taken up in an authentic Caribbean poetry. And so he talks about the iambic pentameter not being quite suited to our mode of expression and our reality. It's not suited to describing the hurricane. It's not suited to describe our landscape. And so he has this famous expression about the hurricane not rhyming in iambic pentameter. <laughs> the language dips in intervallic patterns. The, the iambic pentameter, he says, moves in a need in a, in a forward progression to its predetermined end, whereas Caribbean orality is marked by constant ruptures in the voice, marked by spirals, marked by stops and starts and returns. It's a much more, shall we say, chaotic, if you will, much less kind of neat than even Dante's Terzorima. So interesting, that sense of going to the resources of the vernacular to try and produce expression that is both in terms of the, you know, the, the words used, the lexis, but also in terms of the rhythmic possibilities of, of the vernacular language being so important in identity and expression of experience and, and of, of truth. And one of the examples that you give in, in one of your articles that was very striking to me was the poem A Short History of Dis, which is clearly you know, packed with Dantean references, allusions, you know, picking up in a really interesting way questions of justice as they are treated in, in the Inferno, justice in the context of, I suppose, uh, violence against God in particular, but then bringing it into a very different context and using those themes as a way to explore questions to do with colonial violence and the violence of the city. Could you say a bit about what he's doing with that work and why you think Dante was such an inspiration or such an important source for him with it? Of course. Now, the, that poem that you referred to is 
from a collection called Trenchstone Rock, which was published in the 1990s, 1994 to be precise. And the poem that refers specifically to the Inferno is Short History of Dis, the reference to the city of of hell. That is unmistakable there. But the, the entire collection is permeated by that reflection on violence and it's staging Kingston as a modern day inferno. It's quite subtly done. Um, I, I mean, in saying that, it sounds dreadful and it, it it makes Kingston sound like a really awful, awful place. It's not just a place of the worst and the place of hell and so on. And that is how Brathwaite's work is good as well because he takes up Dante to show or to ask in a sense what exactly is hell and whose hell is it and very often the question of who's living in hell is not as straightforward as it might seem so Brathwaite is mostly engaging with the seventh circle here the, the circle of the violent and he's mostly as you then know, or, uh, and readers of the comedy will know, that when you enter this, you're now entering the space of people who are not just committing tiny sins or moral failures. These are wanton, willful, the hardened, the criminals, and so on. Brathwaite is foregrounding that hardened kind of criminality and of violence in, in this collection. What he does however, is a few things. First of all, what strikes us is that hell is not a place that is in another space from the actual world. Hell is very much the actual world in which we are living. Hell is on earth in the case of Kingston's. Now, secondly, this visually offers an analogy of Kingston's visual architectural look for Brathwaite. This walled forty gated city is he finds mirrored in the actual landscape of Kingston and that comes about because of the high level of violence that exists in the city and people's attempts then to protect themselves which as I say in my article paradoxical in that you're protecting yourself from the outside but at the same by doing that you isolate yourself also from people and that is a circle of violence that is endless because one kind of violence breeds many many kinds so that's what Brathwaite is doing but he's also using the language in interesting ways as well and the nation language that I referred to earlier we can see illustrated in poetry here as well as in all the other collections of Brathwaite's poetry. What Brathwaite does is to make us question who the victims are. In the Inferno, the victims are straightforward. We can identify them. They're there because of crimes that they have committed. In Brathwaite's text, the victims are not always criminals. They're sometimes innocent. And even when so they, they, they're killed or robbed or assaulted or just living in a state of social death and dehumanization um, out of no fault of their own. And even when a person is a criminal and is being violent, the text makes us wonder what is it and what are all the 
historical processes that lead to this situation of a circle of violence that is almost inescapable in the society in terms of the neglect of the poor, which always are the the the, the black majority, the, the masses of, of the society, and the kind of social isolation, the kind of neoliberal economic structures that perpetuate poverty. And so the light is shone on history, on colonialism and the capitalist frameworks that have created a Jamaican society such as we know it. And that kind of reflection on the social aspects of violence and power and the way Rathwaite then inflects Dante is perhaps to my mind, the most powerful aspect of his engagement with him. That's really interesting because uh, I suppose the question of justice that that we were talking about a moment ago, you know, in Dante's text, the challenge of the text is this is divine justice and those who are in hell are, you know, on the receiving end of divine justice. Whereas in Brathwaite's work, the reflection on justice is, is located somewhere else. Yes. So you, they, you know, the suffering is not a consequence of justice, but rather shifts the focus of questions of justice onto questions of st- structure. Precisely. Those are also questions that Dante would recognise, aren't they? But, but yes. he would he would shift those considerations, I think, to to other other places. So all of the things that you talk about around historical processes and the outcomes that they can lead to and acts of injustice are reflected on by Dante, but not as shaping the afterlife itself. The first thing that struck me when I was reading about Brathwaite and, you know, your argument that he takes up these ideas about violence against God, violence against nature, is that these are some of the areas which I think for for many modern readers, these are quite difficult ideas to grapple with in the context of 21st century, 20th century, even societies, the kind of issues that they face. And it just strikes me that this is a really interesting way of opening those questions out that do some quite powerful things. Yes. It struck me as well that the ideas around usury and usurers as being in the circle of the violent was something that I couldn't find a lot of scholarship or any kind of striking scholarship. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but that connects that with capitalism and the kind of violence that that kind of relationship to money breeds. So that was very interesting and I think there's a lot of potential there for further investigation. What do you well, think? My sense of it is that Dante's writing at a time when money is being reinvented in many fundamental ah. ways. And certainly the financial sector is emerging in ways which are very transformative of, of society and of the economy, but also present all sorts of cultural challenges, whether it's on the level of thinking about usury, um, which is the, the kind of the obvious thing, but also in terms of the sort of disruption that these newly powerful kind of financial cycles were bringing in, but also questions of credit, questions of insurance even, risk, 
time, how we conceptualize time through money, the relationship between human activity and the natural world as being reshaped. I'd love to talk more about in yes. the Brathway. And the relation of all of the relation of all of those things to violence and how those processes are become invisibilized so that they might be they are thought about as things that are just happening far away from us but they're happening d- directly as a result of things that are going on in around us or even sometimes things that we are involved in so it's really it's very interesting yeah, yeah. So if we turn now to Lorna Goodison, her engagement with Dante is emerging through a number of Creole translations of cantos of the comedy, as you mentioned. Could you say something about how she's engaging with Dante through her translations? These translations are fascinating in the way they make you imagine Dante, the person, differently. One thing I might do is read a few stanzas of her translation of Canto 15, for instance, um, Brunetto Latini, or of Canto 1. But what will strike the reader is the use of a Jamaican vernacular, in her translations, the use of Jamaican terms, of course, vocabulary and expressions immediately begin to create a different kind of rhythm, just on account of the language, just on account of the sounds. So it's very much a patois, patois translation in some places more than others, but the patois is running through these. In Canto 1, there's a funny bit, a funny aspect of Canto 1 in the sense that her Virgil figure is none other than the poet Derek Walcott, who at the time she wrote this was still alive. So it's, it, was a, it was quite interesting to see that she was mythologizing herself and mythologizing this figure who was supposed to be dead in the Canto itself, but he's very much still alive. So that was quite funny, I found. But I'll read a small a snippet so you get a feel of, of the sound of these. So Canto 1, Dante's Inferno, for Derek Walcott. Halfway through the journey of my life, I come to find myself in a wild, rocky place, for to tell you the truth, my feet had strayed. Tongue cannot tell how this place was hard. Just to talk of it made me frightened all over again. Bitter, barren, only death itself could be worse. But the price I paid for my survival is this. I am now moss and bone to tell you of the good that I found down there. Well, ma'am, well, sir. How I reached down there, it is hard to tell. But my mind was mixed up, contrary, divided. And I slip slide away from the right path. So that I find myself at the foot of a mountain, at the end of a stony valley, where what I saw nearly caused my heart to attack me in my chest. I look up and to see the shoulder of the mountain burnished with early morning sunbeams that guide the pure in heart as they go along their way. And when I see this, my fear was dampened a bit, so that the panic that had pitched and tossed me the night before tossed me to my core, abated. It goes on to talk about when, lo and behold, on the side of the mountain, a leopardess partner. So it's not a leopard as in Dante's. Um, text it, she kind of inverts, it's a leopardess and uh, there's an inversion that happens there. A leopardess partner, her foot light, it's swift, her skin like white domino spotted with black ink. She was shuffling there, staring straight into my face. Blocked, she tried to block my every step, so all I could do was faint 
and moved sideways. It was just before day, remember now. The morning sun was riding, rising. So that you get that orality, remember now. The morning sun was rising up to take its place among the late star, staying stars that surrounded love divine whose hand connected the great lights and set them on high to shine uh, before day hours. The soft doctor breeze that caused me to feel hopeful that I could conquer the ferocious fanged spotted beast. But that hope was to prove weak, not strong enough to overcome my fear. And we get to the point uh, when she addresses the Virgil character, which I says is, which as I said is, is Walcott. And I just read you that section. And when I saw him in that terrible place, I cried out, help me do, pity me, whoever you may be, whether living man or a maping duppy, do help me. He answered me, I am not a man though once I was. I come from good parents. My father was an artist. My mother a school teacher. I was born after Victoria sat long upon her throne. I was one of the first at the College of Mona. I'm a poet, painter and playwright, founder of the finest band of thespians ever collected in the Caribbean. Maybe not just there, but anywhere actors tread the boards. Walcott, who's a Virgil figure, goes on to tell the Pilgrim Goodison about certain acts of post-colonial justice that need to be accomplished and how they will be. And and it's perhaps utopian in, in a way, which is not surprising to me. But it's just interesting to see how then everything has its correspondence. Dante has his correspondence in a Caribbean world. It's a Patois-speaking woman. Virgil has his correspondence in a Caribbean world, which is the eminent poet Derek Walker, who is like Virgin, a father of, of other poets. The language of surprise, of astonishment, has its correspondence in Caribbean orality and the Caribbean vernacular expressions that express or surprise and astonishment. Do not kill me, do. You know, like this, this sort of, of language. The, the modes of address, the apostrophe. Remember no. And it really makes for a rich translation because while respecting the, the template and holding it, it's drawing on the Caribbean sources. It's quite interesting. And I'm really looking forward to the others that she will be publishing. Goodison is doing this out of a commission, actually, because she's been commissioned by London South Bank Centre, along with a number of other poets and writers, I gather, to write these I, I don't know how open-ended the commission was, but it was to celebrate the 700th anniversary of his death. And she's responding to that. Well, look, just hearing you read that makes me want to read more of, of those translations. Because, Well, they're not translations, are they? They're, they're something other than that. But, Rewrite. Um, you know, what is so important, I think, to, to Dante is that sense of the local and the particular. To have that sense of not just the locality of the place you know even the the movement away from a dark wood to a kind of rocky terrain just immediately kind of takes you into a, a locality which is yes. particular but as you say the rhythm of the of the language the kind of switch into a more oral mode which you get there just feels very true to dante whilst as you say seeing seeing his text as 
a template. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm sure we, we could have a very long and interesting conversation about um, Derek Walcott as Virgil and, uh, you know, the presence of Walcott in Caribbean poetry and so on. And of course, Walcott himself is a great reader of Dante. So, so mm-hmm. much richness there. The other translation or rewriting that Goodison has published to date is Brunetto Latini, Dante's Inferno Canto 15, um, in a collection called Travelling Mercies, I believe it was. So I just wanted to add that for readers who want to explore those. And both of them are in the collected poems, as I've said. Now, Jason, I can't resist asking you because you are yourself a poet. I can't resist asking you whether in your own work Dante is a presence, whether you find yourself thinking with Dante in the way that you've seen Césaire, Brathwaite, Goodison, thinking with Dante about these questions? That's that's an awfully good question. I'm tempted to say yes, as I'm tempted to say no. No, in the sense that I personally don't think that Dante comes out overtly in my work. But there was quite a period there where I strove to use Dante. In fact, a poem, a long narrative poem that I published called On Dad Elegy in Callaloo, the um, the 40th, volume 40, number number two of Callaloo, started out using Dante as a template, actually, and the journey of, of the pilgrim. It involved some movement into the underworld, where I looked at a certain trajectory, a certain experiences in Europe as a kind of journey to the underworld in search of the father. The poem itself is a poem about the search of the father and how fatherhood becomes conflated in the poet's experience, my experience, with all sorts of things, you know, post-colonial neglect. So the absent father becomes a kind of figure for all sorts of post-colonial issues, a kind of post-colonial condition. And at the most basic level, absentee fatherhood is, is a big problem in Jamaica, around which a lot of problems, including um, systemic poverty, swirl. And I thought that there was like a lineage of that. So that under, underworld or underground journey is how my poem started. But it, there might be a few resonances Smile of leeches, perfect circle of pain. I see a woman's lips, the eagerness in her eyes. We descend stairs of stone. Praise God, the woman I had kissed in the middle of the street is here underground. Glory and praise, the woman I had kissed in the north is here in the south. And yes, I'm going back to seek my own, a shard in my palm that makes me bleed. I pain, dollar, douleur. The oozing, the ooing of the oo and the ah of the grinding sound of pain is a winding, whining word. Do, 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 leur, do, do, dance with me is a whine in my mouth, is the sexiness of the words, is the drip of sonnets, is a land of sin, of pain. Violent dingue sounds in the night sea going down underneath stones, coming back up ain't sure, but down, down, down in the locked deep, these stones be watching me. The neon lights, the thirst of skin on skin, smell of hunger, regret, and and, and so on. It's, it's um, the law of influences there, but there's, there's certainly Brathwaite's 
influence, I think, on my work as a poet, that authorization of orality, of sound as some kind of way of connecting embodied experience with poetry. And where Dante's influence might, some residual um, influence of Dante might persist in the poem, is the persistent presence of underworld, underground spaces. For example, at nights in the Café d'École Normale Supérieure, hair dancing over faces like flames. Come to me, the whole of you, all of you, come, let me fill you with my desire. I'm hungry for talk, I am a stranger. We smile, fake, scream, fake, dance, fake. The body's gorgeous, the body's white. Marble statues in a mystery book, white body of my learning. Yes, come now, you and I, be my Desdemona on stage in the cafe. Let us dance all night under the light. Your hair of snakes will worm and knot us together. No light no air, the music is my body on yours. I think that residual influence of Inferno comes out there. <laughs> Absolutely magnificent to hear that. And certainly all of the things that you've been talking about around vernacularity as an embodied language, as a language that speaks to experience, but also speaks to some of the hardest, biggest questions. Clearly, that's just wonderful poetry in its own right, but also mm. Dante, among others, was part of your uh, part of your own dialogue as a poet. Mm-hmm. Really wonderful to hear. Thank you, for, thank you for sharing that. Just thank you for the conversation. It's been such a pleasure. The conversation has been a pleasure as well. Likewise, Matthew, thanks for that. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I found it absolutely fascinating talking to Jason, hearing how Césaire, Brathwaite, Goodison and indeed Jason himself, found Dante a valuable interlocutor. As well as being encouraged to read more of Césaire, Brathwaite and Goodison, I'm also eagerly looking forward to reading Jason's first collection of poetry, Thinking with Trees, which is coming out in 2021 with Carcana Press. We've got more conversations on Dante coming up shortly, so look out for those. And for now, as always, I'd like to thank you for listening.